0: This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University
1: of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. So this evening I'm going to be talking with you about emotional awareness and compassion. And we'll actually go through a series of experiential exercises together Of course, the knowledge and concepts matter so much, but really trying them on is what can help us integrate this knowledge in a meaningful way. So I'll go ahead and get started. Our first practice is one in which I'll invite you to consider, if it's comfortable for you, to just gently let the eyelids close. For many of us, we're spending a great deal of time in front of the screen on a day-to-day basis. However, it's perfectly fine to have the eyes just softly open with a gaze in front of you.
0: And as we take our first breath
1: here, consider taking a breath that really attends closely to the sensations as breath travels in through the nostrils and the sensation as breath travels out through the nostrils.
0: taking a moment
1: to feel the experience of being here, present in front of whatever screen you are in front of, noticing the seat beneath you, maybe
0: a couch.
1: And though of course the mind may be traveling to many different places, reflecting on what has happened before, projecting what is yet to come.
0: Even with that movement of the mind, see if you can find some stillness of the body and the breath right here. And to further help anchor or tether our
1: attention, bring your awareness now to the sensations of breath as the belly rises and as the belly falls.
0: As you inhale, noticing the sensations as the belly rises and as you exhale, noticing the sensation as the belly falls.
1: And again, finding now the attention to the subtlety of sensation of breath traveling in through the nostrils and then breath traveling out through the nostrils. now we've done just a bit of grounding here together, noticing the experience of the body, of the belly, of breath through the nostrils. Consider what is your motivation for being here?
0: What is the intention or purpose that you
1: hope to gain by spending this time together, investigating our emotions, compassion, Setting an intention can be a bit elusive at times. We can think of an of an intention that's really specific for right now. Maybe it's to feel a bit of community or connection.
0: Maybe it's for some inspiration. So find the words or phrase that really matches your intention for this moment. And then
1: we will open the aperture and consider the intention of being involved in health care. That greater
0: intention and purpose. Consider the ways you would most like to show up in the work you do every day. And let this be an intention for
1: this evening. May the time here this evening support me in showing up with compassion and presence. May our time here together this evening help me continue to push for greater equality and justice throughout the healthcare system. Find the words or phrase that really stir and motivate this more global overarching meaning, purpose and intention. Gently releasing or letting fall to the back this intention, coming back into the body by wiggling your fingers and toes. And let's blink our eyes back open and together. So what I I hope you find in this first slide here together is an idea of how do we set an intention? How do we find our motivation on a day-to-day basis? This intention setting is actually a critical tool for us in being able to identify not only our overarching meaning and purpose, but what we might need right here and right now. We'll get in a bit into a bit more depth about why this matters or can help us. But I want to give you a tiny bit more background on myself, why I'm here with you all. I'm very fortunate to have spent quite a number of years at UCSF. I was a uh, I was a postdoctoral fellow at the Osher Center and spent a number of good years there actually looking at what are the causes and conditions that lead to burnout, and what are the kinds of interventions and trainings we can do to support healthcare workers. Well before that, I myself was a frontline social worker at San Francisco General Hospital in the emergency room, and my work there, which is there's a photo here from a newspaper when I was actually myself on that service. And what you see here is so many people together. And what really inspired me in my work when I was doing that frontline social work was how much collective care there was between myself and my colleagues. Of course, there was burnout, there was cynicism, but that was actually the aberration. And I went back to school to do my PhD to look at what can we understand about these causes that lead to burnout and what are the ways that we can develop interventions to support those who really do have this motivation as i'm sure all of you found to be of service to help others this very kind of call of why healthcare reaches out to so many of us and brings us in i was very fortunate in my time at the osher center to do some research Really specifically looking at emotional awareness and healthcare. So you see here this little app and animation that will show up. One of the things I got interested in was what are the emotions people feel on a day to day basis? When we say something like burnout, it's just such a huge term. We know that it means a form of chronic, ongoing stress. We know that it includes feelings of fatigue and overwhelm. But when we look at kind of a micro level of burnout, burnout includes emotion at a variety of different levels. Burnout is our emotional exhaustion, the feeling of overwhelm at the end of the day from having performed different emotion labor, either over-amplifying our enjoyable emotions or suppressing our difficult emotions, depending on the context and what's needed. Also, burnout includes a sense of purpose or meaning. We were just touching into that. When we miss that sense of purpose, it can be really hard for us to feel connected to the work and to tap into those natural feelings of pro-social enjoyment. Literally, altruism, compassion, and kindness are natural rewards. It feels good to be of service. And when we feel blocked in our meaning and purpose, as though what we do doesn't matter, It becomes very difficult for us to sustain and keep doing what is expected of us on a day-to-day basis. The other part of burnout that many of us are familiar with is that level of cynicism. That feeling that, you know, what we do, it just doesn't even matter. It's just so overwhelming. And maybe even some negativity. And that level of burnout, we're actually disconnected from our affect. We aren't aware of our emotions. We've kind of fully suppressed them and put them down. So when I was interested in looking at the day-to-day emotion experiences of healthcare providers, what I was hoping to understand is what is the kind of granular level of day-to-day experience? I'll tell you that was one, one finding that was quite exciting was Over the course of 14 days, and I had 100 participants, all of them residents, some in pediatrics, some in family community medicine, and they recorded twice a day their emotion episodes. And of these 100 participants, over 50% of their recorded episodes, and this was evenly distributed, over 50% of all the emotions felt by these residents over two weeks were enjoyable emotions. And I didn't just choose happy, well-adjusted residents. These were residents with profound levels of burnout and stress and depression. I did these preliminary baseline surveys, and they fit the picture of what we see in residencies across the country. And yet, on a day-to-day basis, their emotions told us a different story, that there were these moments of being triggered to feelings of well-being just by having some time to eat lunch or listen to music or they had a feeling of connection when really having a way to communicate effectively with a patient. So when we look at a granular level, we get a bit more data, a bit more texture about what is going on beneath the, beneath the surface of burnout. So let's talk a bit about what emotions are. How do we understand them? Why do they matter? So when we look at emotions we actually see that emotions are implicated in many of our daily experiences not only do they have an impact on our brain and our thinking so when we become emotional often there's a term that's used called we are called emotional hijacking right we just feel as though we are pulled under by the experience of that emotion we can barely become aware of anything else so when we feel happy the world smiles on us when we feel frustrated pretty much everything is annoying. When we feel anxious, everywhere we turn, there's a threat. So it's very interesting to see how this experience of emotion, which is triggered in a 25th of a second, can completely transform our perception of the world around us. Now, this is really key and important. It's not that emotions change the world, they change our perception of the world. Yet our perception is what we believe to be true. So when we think about emotions, they have this incredible power to shift and shape the world we're living in. Our emotions are also deeply connected to others. So many of you may be familiar with the fact that we are essentially hardwired head to toe to resonate to one another emotionally. When we hear a certain vocal tone, when we see a facial expression of emotion, we will feel an immediate response without having to think about that response. So if we see a colleague or a patient crying, there's a turning towards, maybe a feeling with that sadness. And we become curious. Of course, it can lead to empathy, but the shared resonance of emotion is so important. It means that we all are in this together. Emotions aren't just what happened to us individually. They are what is happening to us collectively. Emotions are embodied. For many of us, this might seem obvious, but for others, maybe not so much. Our emotions are not just a cognitive process. They don't merely happen in the brain or shift our perception, as I was talking about. That's actually a cascade of different experiences. Physiologically, we see so many different things happen in our bodies when we become emotional. And what happens when we're anxious and what happens when we're angry is actually not quite similar. So we have preparation to run with blood rushing to our legs when we're anxious and preparation to fight with blood rushing to our hands and to our arms when we are angry. The reason it's important for us to really recognize or consider this embodied emotion experience is it's one way for us to start working with our emotions. It's to become familiar with our embodied emotion experience Another colleague of both Dr. Becker and mine at the Osher Center, wolf Maling, is a pioneer in the field of interoception, this embodied awareness of our emotion experience. Interestingly, people who are better able at recognizing their own emotional experience are better at empathy, recognizing what's happening to others. People with better interoception are also, in general, having a greater ability to have well-being and social connection. So again, this turning toward our emotion experience or learning about it is really in service of being able to communicate and get along with being part of or feeling connected to others. Our emotions also are so huge for our communication. If I started talking like this or I started talking like this, Things change so quickly through our tone of voice. Things change, of course, by how we express ourselves. Now that we are all, I learned this term today, Zoom right, on Zoom, it's a little bit harder. I'm a tiny square on your screen, but you can still recognize my facial expression and a lot is communicated that way. So when we look at our emotion experience, we start to see that indeed, there's quite a great richness. So let's look a bit more at different families of emotion. And when I say family, I mean that each one of these, anger, disgust, enjoyment, fear, sadness, has a whole range. Within sadness, we can think of loneliness, feelings of isolation, all the way to despair and anguish. When we think of enjoyment, huge range. We can have bliss, feelings of ecstasy and joy. We can have relief. We can have pride. We can have contentment. So these are all quite large families that have a similar signature, meaning we can see it on the face in a similar way, similar vocal signature, and physiological. These are not all of the emotions, but these are the emotions with a universal signal that has been very well demonstrated in the science. It's useful for us to consider how do we want to work with these emotions. You may have seen a couple slides back here. This quite wonderful photo with myself with longer hair and uh, His Holiness the Dalai Lama in the bottom corner. He actually commissioned this project, which is an online tool called the Atlas of Emotion. His goal was to engage with scientists to really look at, is there a way we can start to understand our emotions by having a map? And I think it's a wonderful idea. I've been fortunate to be teaching in this field of emotion awareness for about the last decade. And when we think about our emotions, it can be a little bit complicated, kind of like, yeah, what did happen and who was involved and how did I react, gosh. But when we have a visual tool to start seeing and naming and noticing, we can get a bit farther. So I'm gonna have us choose one emotion here and work with it just as an example to start developing this idea of emotional awareness. So let's think about working with anger. It happens quite a lot. It's an emotion that, of course, um, can be quite problematic. It is the only emotion in which we see aggression and violence. It is an emotion that when it is coupled with hatred, really underlies and is kind of, um, I would say, kind of responsible or, or partially understood as part of a lot of the tribalism and polarization in our world today. When I think of anger in healthcare, care, we can think of a lot of different reasons why. Systemic injustice in, the health, in what health healthcare is given to who. We can feel angry when we've been wrongly faulted. Someone accused us of doing something we did not do. Moral distress and injury can lead to a great deal of frustration and anger. If we aren't given credit for the work that's done, if we feel as though things are just inefficient, Think paperwork, EHR, there's this feeling of frustration that it just doesn't have to be that way. Also, of course, we can be frustrated with patient or patient-family conflict. So I wanted us to think about one example of when we might have felt frustrated so that we can unpack anger a bit. So Dr. Becker has volunteered to possibly give us an example of a recent Frustrating episodes that we can kind of map this emotion timeline together.
2: Oh, so this is not one that I'm necessarily proud of at all, Eve, because it does recur more often than I like. It. But I figured there are plenty of people who can relate to the the experience of um, being on the road back and forth to work or anywhere you need to go in any situation on the roads where um, you people don't always behave that well in their cars. Yes. Actually, it's not on other people, it's on me. And it's on my sense of urgency. I need to get to someplace important or do get this, I'm responsible for something. And so I get really frustrated with somebody
1: else on the road. Yes. Yes, that is a, um, I would say worldwide, um, I've heard that exact same episode. And so in this simple framing of it, right, the trigger would be, let's say, someone going slow. Is that, uh, would that be a good example? Someone going slow in front of you? Sure. Okay. So they, they're going slow and your experience. Now here, let's, let's get a little deeper into it. Do you remember what it feels like in the body when you're in a rush, somewhere important to go and there is... Oh,
2: yeah, no, the tenseness is definitely there.
1: Yeah. I saw it in your brow, maybe in the jaw, in the body as well. hmm And then what is the response? How do you how do you act? Well, that's confidential information. <laughs> I,
2: I um I I make an effort to recognize it um, and not actually act on it. Um, but sometimes I get more aggressive. I try and pass somebody. Um, I'm not much of one to be laying on the horn, but um, I definitely get frustrated. I'll hold the wheel tighter. Um, I know that my breathing gets a little more shallow.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And I think what's really interesting to Look at when we start breaking it down in this way is again, I, I mentioned this earlier, but we become triggered in a 25th of a second. So we really have no ability to insert conscious awareness in between trigger and experience. And I hope that's normalizing for you and for a lot of people, that there is our understanding that in our environment of evolutionary adaptedness, it made sense to respond emotionally before we think. And
2: That's problematic, can be very challenging. And extremely challenging. And I love that you point that out um, because there can be um, in, in a way an understanding, a popular understanding of the idea of mindfulness, that actually being aware of these things means that we're supposed to get to the point of not experiencing it or be able to respond in a way calmly right from the beginning.
1: Yeah. Yeah, and of course it's nice to have ideals. And I do think that there are some adepts of meditation who've spent many thousands of hours practicing that they notice the spark before the flame. Maybe they see it coming. But for most of us especially, you know, you talk when we talk about a trigger, a trigger isn't just the person in front of you going slow. You mentioned it well, it's I'm in a rush. I got to get somewhere. Right. So our trigger has also a lot to do with what's happening for us. Are we tired? Are we hungry? Are we in a rush? Did we already have a difficult episode? And our trigger includes our bias, our lived experience until this moment. Right. And so kind of investigating and interrogating our trigger can help us build awareness. Will it help us in that 25th of a second? Mm, Hard, hard to say so but it might give us some clues or cues as to why we get upset. So for people, especially who struggle with more um, expressive, regrettable episodes of anger, and this is common, where there's a a constant feeling of regret and even shame around the emotion experience, doing this kind of looking into what are the conditions that lead to it. Um, Some folks I've worked with, they've had the experience of really, in their their family environment, they never felt listened to. So when they're in a contemporary environment of not feeling listened to, the anger triggers so quick. And having awareness of that is getting closer to freedom. It's not everything. I think for, for many of us, we also need to really hone in on our responses. It might be easy in the context of seeing a patient or patient family to automatically suppress our anger. We're like, okay, this is not appropriate. And there can be an immediate understanding of just suppressing. And that immediate suppression is a very useful tool. And, you know, as you, I'm glad you brought up the goal or ideal of emotional awareness or mindfulness of our emotions isn't to get rid of our emotions. It's actually to learn from them and to transform those responses. I think what's essential to realize is that our emotion, any emotion can be constructive or destructive. There's a couple of
2: questions that just came through related to this theme. Um, Would you say that some triggers, although uncomfortable, can highlight areas for potential growth? And how how does movement of trigger warnings fall into the equation?
1: Movement of trigger warnings
2: not sure I'm not sure I followed that exactly either so I'm happy to hear a clarification uh, about that question
1: yeah and I, I will say that we can you know it's it is a bit discouraging to bring our mindful awareness to emotions at first we become aware of more and more episodes we'll talk a bit more again about this granularity of emotion experience where we can sense it in the body and when we start becoming aware as as you did in uh being you know in traffic or feeling road rage and we notice wow there's a tight band at the forehead there's clenching in the jaw and then there's heat in the chest and we kind of map that we can then recognize that i feel that a lot (laughs) i feel that when my computer needs to be restarted i feel that when you know there's um i realize i'm out of coffee in the morning And so developing that awareness of what triggers us, it can be a tiny bit disheartening at first, but so illustrative, so illustrative. I'll say that with the destructive and constructive response, this is important. We don't want to think that every time we feel anger, we're we're somehow no longer mindful or we're somehow no longer um, a good person. Anger has an incredible power and energy that we can harness for good. Even His Holiness the Dalai Lama talks about the fact that if we can use our frustration and anger about injustice in a skillful way, promotes a lot of good in the world. Where we see the difference of when it becomes destructive with any emotion, but specifically with anger, is when it's intended to harm. When it's intended to harm. So we understand that constructive means that we are doing something in the service of our own and others' well-being destructive is when we're doing it with actually an intent to harm, and that's quite different. This is important because with our contemporary culture, speaking globally, the emphasis on being happy kind of points us in the wrong direction. Sensory pleasure and enjoyment is great, and yet it's not the full story of our emotional life. Some of our feelings of uh, stress and overwhelm can be exacerbated by feeling like I should be happy, I should be doing okay, I have everything, you know, the job I've always wanted, or this or that. And so this idea that it's okay for us to experience the full range of emotions can be quite liberating. And to really give ourselves that discernment of which of our emotions are destructive and how we respond, and which ones are constructive, and give ourselves the goal of moving towards constructive responses. So I'm gonna ask us to do just a brief practice here. We've been talking about emotion. No need to close your eyes if you'd like to, that's totally fine and appropriate. But I am gonna ask you to really look inward and think of a time in the last day or two when you felt frustrated. Now, memory is a powerful elicitation tool. When we remember, we actually trigger or can trigger a similar experience of that emotion. And so give yourself a moment to notice where in the body you might feel certain sensations, like warmth or contraction. And kind of notice the texture or quality of these sensations. Again, maybe in the forehead, maybe in the brow maybe in the chest or in the belly. And the simple instructions for this practice are, we bring to mind this memory of a difficult emotion episode. In this case, we're using frustration or anger.
0: Then you release the memory
1: and you meet the emotion as though shaking hands with it. You're not trying to push it away or deny it. And instead, you actually feel or imagine as though that emotion had all the space it needed. If we stop triggering our emotion by stopping thinking about it, the physiological experience of it will just gently, slowly start to subside. So for a couple more breaths here, just notice the sensations in the body as they gently subside. And now for a couple breaths, just invite a sense of kindness and caring. As though when you inhaled, you were inhaling this caring, kind presence right here, right to the sensations in the body. And when you exhale, you're releasing tension, contraction, and tightness, any emotional residue. Then once again, wiggling fingers and toes. And if your eyes were closed, blinking them back open. So that of course, very small taste of a embodied emotion awareness practice. This slide I'm showing you here, this is actually from a study in which the researchers asked people very similar to think of an emotion episode and kind of highlight where they felt sensations, and whether the sensations felt warm or cool. And over the participants who they asked, there was quite a high degree of um, overlap. So people had a same sense of where they had contempt and anxiety and love. And I'm just sharing this with you here because this is actually quite a useful practice. If there's an emotion you would like to work with, whether it's frustration or anxiety, Starting to do a simple body map, doesn't have to be more sophisticated than this, can really provide a lot of information. So when we think about emotion granularity or labeling, there's a great deal of research to show that that simple naming of our emotion state can be beneficial. So in the handshake practice, we're naming the physiological sensation, where is it, what is it like, but also naming instead of, God, I had a terrible day, saying, I felt really annoyed today. That actually gives us one level of uh, space away from our experience. We're kind of engaging the prefrontal cortex and overriding a little bit of that amygdala response of just feeling with our emotion. There's a term called cognitive fusion. When we're just in the experience, we can't see out of the emotion, And when we name it, we actually give ourselves, again, just that tiny bit of distance. So learning a vocabulary of our emotions is quite useful. This slide is, again, from the Atlas of Emotion. That's a freely available online tool, again, that was supported by the Dalai Lama and one that we hope gives people a bit of this vocabulary for identifying and labeling emotions. Here might be some of the sensations you can notice in the body, but you can come up with your own list. Tight, heavy, hot, tingling, pressure, undulating, expansive. And now we'll look at you know some of the other ways that emotions can be challenging, especially in the work context. So there can be emotional distress. This is empathic fatigue. Sometimes called compassion fatigue, though recent neuroscientific research coming out of the laboratories of Max Planck Institute in Berlin really show us that it's the empathic distress or fatigue that is overwhelming. Compassion in and of itself is quite a distinct experience, and we can talk about the difference a little bit. So it's meaningful when we think of empathic distress to realize that when we're feeling empathically distressed, we're often merging with the experience of another's suffering, whether it's their sadness or their fear. And when we're thinking about compassion, we're actually cultivating the aspiration to care for another. And that has this kind of natural reward. We'll talk a bit more about compassion shortly. So one of the ways that we can feel overwhelmed from emotions at work is this kind of resonance as emotion resonance as well. And that's our kind of our negative rub off. So you can go and you maybe encounter a group of your colleagues and you're in quite a good mood. You've had so far quite a good day and they're just having a terrible time and complaining and it rubs off, right? These emotions really are quite contagious. Emotion labor. Now this term I think is so useful. It's a term from sociology and it talks about how on a day-to-day basis, For many of us, the labor is, of course, technical, um, sometimes very specific, but there's also this emotion labor of how we are engaging with another being. And when we are engaging, we have to attune to them. And often, especially in our role as professionals, we have to specifically identify, are we showing everything we feel? What are we actually repressing? And much like when we're lifting something heavy in physical labor with emotion labor, we are either pushing down or pulling up whatever we're feeling and that this emotion labor can be exhausting. There's also emotion incivility, quite a rich literature on this from uh, nursing scholarship, where you see that, especially as a cause of burnout, rudeness, bullying and aggression. So we see a lot of the ways that emotions can really become problematic in the workplace. So what are the strategies that we can use to work with them? Well, we've covered one. We've talked quite a bit about emotion granularity, naming, labeling, getting specific on our emotion experience. We can also, in some ways, counterbalance or you know uh, level out a bit with, by increasing our pro-social emotions. And we'll talk about that in more depth. But this idea that some of the ways we naturally engage with one another, it makes us feel good. And it helps counteract a little bit of that heaviness or difficulty of our emotion experiences. It's really useful as a, a buffer for stress. And then also compassion. So how can we use compassion to help us work with our more difficult or challenging emotions? So we'll actually get started with compassion. There, it's important for us to distinguish here that there is both compassion and self-compassion compassion is defined as a feeling that arises in witnessing another's suffering and that motivates a desire to help. Importantly here, compassion doesn't necessarily mean action. We can have a a compassionate motivation, a compassionate care, and that in and of itself can be quite efficacious, allowing us to remain open to other people's distress or suffering. Self-compassion is applying a heartfelt concern that our own suffering matters. And what's interesting about self-compassion, its first step is the most nuanced and sometimes really insidious. We don't notice it. In order for us to have self-compassion, we actually have to recognize that we're suffering, that something is hard. I've noticed in my many years of work with healthcare professionals, the compassion for others flows easily, no problem. The compassion for oneself may be a little more limited. And there could be this idea of, well, my suffering compared to the suffering of my patients. It's just incomparable. And that can be a real barrier to providing ourselves the compassion we need. Of course, it may be a different type or kind of suffering, but all of us are experiencing stress, difficulty, loss, threat, challenge. So when we have that uh, kind of call to self-compassion, it's first recognizing it's hard. Whatever we're experiencing is hard and that it's hard for everyone. So there's a nice part of humility with self-compassion, a recognition that just like everybody, we are struggling and suffering. So these go really hand in hand. These practices can be done as written journal entries. They can be done as guided meditation. They can be done on the spot, in the moment, when we are face-to-face with someone who is really having a hard time. With a compassion practice, it really is. It's, just, it's a feeling that arises or a heartfelt concern. I know that sounds squishy, but you can think of it as writing a message. One that just says, I care, and I wish it was different. I care, and I'm here. So it can be quite simple. But it really is kind of tending to that aspiration or intentional part. When we think about, you know, creating a culture of compassion, or I say here a counterculture of compassion, one that would maybe go in the face of a culture of burnout or stress, isolation, loneliness, we start with that, of course, care for ourselves, also for our colleagues. And then this one may seem out of reach to many of us, but can we have even compassion for these dysfunctional systems that we're working within? Not because we allow it or say it's okay, but because our anger and frustration towards these systems and inefficiencies can overwhelm us. Some of the more challenging and difficult emotion experiences we have is that kind of bitter, overwhelmed, just over and over. God, it's always like this. So terrible. And again, that's how do we enact our frustration in a way that is constructive and not destructive? One of it is through compassion. So when we look at compassion, especially at work, there's quite a rich literature. We see that compassion actually supports our physical health, our stress, and our resilience. It lowers our blood pressure and is highly associated with reducing depression. It really is useful for collaborating with others. We like compassionate people. We enjoy doing projects with them. Compassion makes us happier and more optimistic. It improves our esteem and optimism. So these are all qualities that really are supportive of us. And it's interesting because this compassion and and what we're asked to do when we feel compassionate is actually to look at what's hard and to meet it and to care. It's a bit counterintuitive. Most of us would like to reduce the amount of difficulty and challenge and struggle That we're facing or turning towards every day. It's important to recognize that compassion isn't being detached or passive, ignoring injustice, denying core values about standing up. And compassion is not pity and looking down on someone. What's really hard and really wonderful about compassion is we see ourselves as the same as others. We recognize something fundamental about this common humanity. And that really helps us generate care. In one of my sessions working with pediatricians years ago, I was really moved by one resident who said that it was very hard for her to imagine compassion for one of the patient family members that she was working with. She felt this patient family member was directly harmful towards the patient. And she wasn't sure if they deserved compassion. But then she described the frustration and anger she felt towards this patient family member. It kept her up, made her upset, and she decided that she would choose to have compassion, not because they deserved it, because it was her choice. And I thought that was a very powerful way of thinking about our compassion. And how we can have compassion can actually look a lot of different ways. That didn't mean she went in and gave this person hugs and said, everything you're doing is good. She did exactly what she was doing before, setting firm boundaries, really being clear and vigilant, making sure no more harm was done. So our compassion doesn't have to mean that we are, as you see here, like a marshmallow in a fire. Our compassion can be, as I said in the title of this talk, fierce. But it's done so without aggression and without anger. That's a key distinction here. So when we think about bringing compassion into action, <laughs> not just theoretical, can we have compassion for anger that we have felt in the last week? Meaning, you know, what was it we were angry at? And recognizing the emotion and the context that made us angry. Is there a way now you could actually revisit that anger with a bit more care and kindness? So I'll think of an example here. Um, In this last week, I was asked to do work at night, and I don't usually work at night. I don't like working at night. Tonight's an exception for you all. Um, But when I think about being asked to work at night, I had this immediate sense of frustration and I I was upset. I was kind of angry that I was being asked. I had already worked a very long day, had worked many days in a row. And if I revisit that feeling now, I see that there was a lot of blame in it. And I really collapsed this person who was asking me to do a little extra work at night. They became completely wrong and bad. They were a bad person for asking me this. So I can see here now with care and kindness that that person had also been asked to work at night. (laughs) They were receiving other uh, demands and this goes back and back and back and that there's so much more complexity than my immediate feeling of anger that I was feeling towards this person. And that there is also a way that that was difficult for me, hard to bear that feeling of frustration in addition to having to work at night. So when we start to kind of mine or like look closely at our compassion and how we can apply it, we can find it gives us all sorts of freedoms and we can do so retrospectively. In the moment, wonderful, but for many of us, this is unavailable. So how do we kind of look back, especially on our regrettable emotional episodes and apply compassion? We can think of doing this also with someone who we feel acted in a way that was regrettably uh, emotional, who was angry at us. And can we understand what was going on for them and their co- in the context? So here we're building the compassion for ourselves alongside building the compassion for others. It's simple, but it's very easy to not do this, to not take that time. Okay, so, we're gonna move on now to our increasing our pro-social emotions. So we can, we can move ourselves towards the end of our talk on the upswing here. So what are pro-social emotions? That might not be a term you're familiar with. In the work I've done with the Greater Good Science Center at Berkeley, we've really highlighted these sources of a meaningful life, of a happy life, that they are intricately connected very often to others. Our happiness really includes other people. So each of these has a whole body of research behind it. And we see that each of these really contributes to our overall sense of well-being. And I say this as a meaningful strategy for working with our emotions because we don't want to just reduce the destructive responses. We want to increase our constructive responses. And sometimes these tr- very trainable skills can help us uh, balance that out. So, of course, there's mindfulness. We can train ourselves to be more mindful and aware. There's connection. We can do really explicit, specific activities to foster meaningful connection with others. Gratitude is a practice I'll talk about at the very end that we can engage with that helps us to savor and appreciate life. Compassion, we've just talked about quite a lot, including not only care, but also forgiveness. Kindness, even the simplest acts of behavioral kindness. Play, many of us don't have a lot of play in our everyday life. Play isn't working out. That's quite different. Play is something that you do really without any kind of rules or or judgment. Awe, a very underappreciated emotion that often occasions a sense of humility as well. We have a sense of being part of a whole. And optimism. Optimism fostering intentionally and wisely, an idea that things maybe are okay or could be better than we expect. So some of these, each of these has their own set of unique activities. I'm gonna take a tiny aside here to to burnout, to say that it's really worthwhile for us to think about the value of engaging with these pro-social training, with trying to do these everyday activities as a way to help us combat and look at burnout. We know that burnout is precipitated by a dysfunctional work environment, and it's not a failure of personal resilience or a medical condition. I always like to say this off the bat. I think, unfortunately, it can feel as though when we talk about burnout, we're talking about how can you do more to handle your stress? And that's, that's not accurate, right? We do know that it's many of these institutional and environmental factors. And yet we also know that the roots of burnout include individuals and teams and institutions. And there's a lot of factors that are contributing to our experience of burnout. And they really have to do with um, many things that are outside of our control, right? What is the team we're on? Is it a supportive team? Do we have autonomy in our role? Is there role clarity? What's the structure of our team like? Or, of course, these larger institutional factors of whether or not we feel we're part of a diverse and inclusive environment that meets us where we are. Whether the bureaucracy feels overwhelming. And then at this one level of individual stressors, there is some work we can do with our coping resources. So amid the 14,000 manuscripts uh, in PubMed on burnout, there's this this kind of... um, overarching point of view that sometimes organizational trainings help and sometimes individual trainings help. So I add in this kind of aside on burnout because I want us to really think and feel a sense of the importance and value of looking at these trainings, looking at these small ways that we can really foster our sense of connection and care within our work. One way that we can really support a sense of pro-social connection at work and uh, overall optimism is really feeling meaning. So we can find opportunities for meaning with patient families and patients going through really difficult times in their lives. We can find meaning through helping our colleagues who are struggling. We can also create meaning by just creating a narrative and understanding about our own profound emotional challenges so we can make meaning out of pretty much everything that we're experiencing. It does take a little time and as we started with together, taking that moment to really orient and notice what is the intention of my day? What is my moment-to-moment experience of what is supportive of me? And then what's my overarching goal? Why am I here in this work? As we connect closer and closer to our sense of meaning and purpose, it actually becomes more available or visible to us. It becomes more of a resource for us to feel and sense that what we do makes a difference, that we, that, that care really matters. People who have that sense of meaning and purpose, it says that they actually have stronger immune response profiles and that they have less risk of cardiovascular disease. So that's pretty encouraging for all of us. And then there's been research uh, studying people who have a stronger sense of purpose are actually likely to live longer. So a lot of these studies show us that connecting to that sense of meaning and purpose and being in healthcare, I'd say we're quite fortunate. The meaning and purpose is right there. We get to serve others, support others. All of these skills and tools compassion, empathy, gratitude, happiness, uh, and meaning. These are things that can be cultivated with practice. I think that's a really important take home message around these parts of our kind of pro-social and positive feelings, and they are contagious. We can practice them with others and it redoubles. So when we think of this kind of upward spiral, we have kindness and compassion that we feel, that we express. It helps us feel connected to others. It gives us a sense of meaning and purpose to feel connected, which supports our overall well-being. And when we have well-being, kindness and compassion are more naturally available. Of course, what can really get in the way is our stress, anxiety, and burnout. So you see here that they're all kind of connected and part of one another, And what we can do, what our individual training, our individual attention to these practices, it really can matter. It is important for us. Given our time here, what I'd like to do is to actually think about maybe doing one last practice together. And I wonder, David, if you'd be willing to do a practice with me here. So we're going to do a practice of gratitude. Um, I want to mention that on the Greater Good Science Center website, we have a lot of free resources. And one of them is the Gratitude as Medicine uh, Survival Kit. It's a downloadable set of tools and activities that you can use and share with others. Um, so in it, it tells us some of the kind of research data on gratitude and how it helps increase happiness in life, how it helps us make feel resilient um, and it also gives us, you know, some simple activities to do with gratitude on a day to day basis. So I'm going to here's a little bit more on gratitude. This this one always I think if it improves sleep, I don't know who wouldn't want to do it. I've actually used this quite a lot myself when I struggled with um, waking up at night due to work stress. I really start thinking of what I'm grateful for uh, as an antidote. So I think one of the activities that's pretty universally um, enjoyable for people is this three good things. And so we can start it today and it's up to you if you want to keep going for the rest of the week, but we can at least start here and you write down three things that went well for you today. And that sounds so simple, but what's really crucial about this practice is the more specificity, the better. So we wanted, like, not only what was good, but why it went well. Um, And, you know, we can also kind of really make a a strong effort to remember, like, what did it feel like when this good thing happened? The more specific, the the, the more specific, the better. So I'll ask you to kick us off. Can you remember three good things today? What they were, how it happened?
2: I one well, of my biggest ones today for me was was um, resolution of some of a work conflict issue mm. where it had been contributing to some stress for a period of time, and um, it was a, a combination of for me noticing whatever my contribution was and mm. attending to it, and then. Um, you know, joining in a process of solving things. Hmm. Um, And so I'm actually, I'm really grateful for the opportunity and for the receptiveness of the person I was working with and the fact that we could work together to to move things forward.
1: Wow. Yeah. Thanks for the specificity on that, right? It's not just an immediately enjoyable. It sounds a bit like relief. Um, (laughs)
2: <laughs> there was some relief there, yes. <laughs> um, and I could feel it when you when you mentioned the three things. That's the first one that came to mind for me. And actually, mm-hmm. as I'm noticing being grateful for that process, I felt a relief mm-hmm. just in actually recognizing it again.
1: Yeah, savoring. Yeah, and of course, we'd love anyone in the audience who wants to put their good things. We will absolutely read those. Do you have one or two more for us?
2: Uh, um, I'm, I'm already feeling grateful for the dinner. I know my wife is going to be cooking tonight.
1: <laughs> Preemptive. Does that count? Yes. yes, and and why? Right? Because here you are. Yeah. Almonds, and
2: it's, I think it's it, it is the I don't I just I enjoy it. I like it. The consistency of what she puts together is really good. We we trade off. cooking, okay. so it goes back and forth the responsibility for it. And, um, and in part that's, it helps me be grateful because I know what goes into preparing and getting things ready.
1: Yeah. And they can be as small as possible. Right. So Mm -hmm. I think um, I was very grateful for a little bit of a breeze that happened to be going through my home office today, given that it was such a warm day and made it so much more pleasant to not be outside when maybe I wanted to to have a little bit of that freshness inside so I was wondering
2: since our our presentation here each of these talks is for the broader public uh, Mm. you know wondering for the parents out there and confronting the the things that have come up over this past year there's so much they're juggling everything from their own work to the kids to managing all the stresses of this environment we've been in um to pick something specific you know the we can think of a myriad different triggers of a parent of a 14 year old who is retreating to the room more often or they just find out they're skipping a zoom class for their school and it obviously raises a bunch of emotions um, at the time. Um, let's, let's, let's imagine it's somebody who has taken in what you've been talking about today and is, is noticing these things that are coming up for them. What suggestions do you have for in the moment?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think in the, <clears throat> in the moment, if it's anger, we'll just stick with anger because I think that's a, a good one. If we cannot act, that is our greatest greatest goal. And that's hard. We may not even be aware that we're acting depending again on our style. There's quite a bit of interesting research that how we respond to anger and fear is quite consistent. Meaning I might be someone who, whenever I'm angry, I kind of, I suppress and avoid, uh, or I might be someone who reliably likes to talk it out and get loud. And that that is something we are kind of habituated to. So very often we have a style of responding that can be very hard for us to um, kind of interfere with or intervene. So the first part is recognizing our style and then figuring out like what is possible to do and, and get ourselves a moment maybe three to five minutes to reduce the acute phase of that emotion because our emotions they're triggered in a 25th of a second and mostly they're done in about one to three minutes and when we feel them longer it's because we're re-triggering them like i can't believe he skipped class i knew he was going to skip class i told him this morning. it's the, our perpetuation of the trigger so our our greatest um You know, skill is what can we do to just momentarily kind of extinguish the heat of that, um, which is often not thinking. We always have this idea that if we think through our emotions, we'll figure it out where it's actually more like kerosene on the fire. So Mm -hmm. the tool of noticing the body, that's a good one. We always have our body with us, right? You could journal, you could take a walk. Sometimes we don't have time or space for that, but you can always say, what is it like right now in my kneecap? What is it like right now in my belly? So to give ourselves that kind of targeted, grounded, embodied um, tool, we could also, a colleague of ours, Alyssa Eppel, over there at um, the Center for Aging, Metabolism, and Emotion, she has a really beautiful research on stress reappraisal. So if I say, you know, my frustration about um, my kid skipping their class today is a very healthy stress. It's one that's telling me something's important. I'm not gonna act on it right now, but so this kind of reappraisal um because mm-hmm. part of it could be also, I'm so frustrated they skip class. And why are they doing this to me? <laughs> why are they making me feel this way? So oh. any way in which we can recognize the benefit and utility of our emotion can also be helpful.
2: I like I appreciate that. There's 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 a lot of ways that we can become uh, better and better aware of um, not the not just the the emotion in the moment, but the body felt experience of it, perhaps the pattern of it that we tend to do. And then I love the reframing of some of that in a minute before allowing us the time to 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 let that process happen before we give ourselves a chance to decide how to respond.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: Um, whether that is a, you know, direct response to the moment or sometimes even responding by owning what our reactions are.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: Yeah. Yeah. So a question just came in a couple of them now. Uh, can you talk about collective consciousness? especially as it relates to COVID roller coaster we've all been on. The pandemic provides opportunities for compassion, empathy, and love of strangers while also enabling fear and resentment of those same people. Areas like mask compliance, social distancing, vaccine hesitation all occur within uh, those same dualities.
1: Um, Suggestions for how to maneuver among the country. Yeah, thank you for the question. Great noticing um, of this awesome stew that we are in and, and how it can really potentiate emotions. I'll, I'll choose just one I, I think is worth worth highlighting um, from that description of different emotions we feel. And it's one that I've, I've talked about in healthcare um, before, but it's certainly not relegated to healthcare. And that's the emotion of contempt. And it's an emotion that we have quite a lot during the pandemic. Contempt is the emotion that signals a sense of superiority. I know better. Um, contempt is the emotion that is really inside of judgment. And contempt is an emotion that we we actually, most of us, enjoy. Uh, a good deal of social media, a good deal of our entertainment has a lot of contempt in it. So it's very, you know, um, I don't know the, the perfect word to say it, but it's it's almost culturally condoned. And I think one way to start working with the challenges of this time and, you know, especially around um, mass compliance or how people are acting around us is to recognize and feel into that contempt and get maybe a bit beneath it. I liked how the questioner asked around, you know, there's a lot of fear happening there and a lot of resentment. And I think being able to parse out both of those feelings and really understand the root cause or core of that. So our contempt is insidious because we don't notice it. It kind of feels good. But what contempt does is it blocks empathy. We think of someone as less than. They don't know. I know. And what's interesting is we have you know researchers like John and Julie Gottman who studied the um, relationship. Relationships of married couples for decades. And they look at different emotions that these couples express and which couples have which emotions who end up staying together longer versus who have um, divorces when they're in kind of difficult conversations. So they look at these couples as they're talking about a marital issue. And when there's more contempt and especially disgust in that interchange, more likely for divorce and breaking up. When there's anger, less likely. Partially, that's because when we're angry at someone, we expect better of them. When we're contemptuous of them, we don't even expect them to live up to it. So I guess that's just a really rich question with a lot of angles. But I think when we work with our contempt, with that same strategy I was describing of can we apply compassion? Why is that person wearing the mask below the nose? Maybe they are allergic to the mask they happen to wear today, and this is the best they can do, right? It's in some ways like softening our knowingness, our certainness. And because we all are experiencing higher levels of fear and uncertainty, it can be really hard to recognize that subtle jitteriness just below the surface. So giving ourselves the compassion of, oh, God, I'm just so tired of you know, the same four block radius around my house and that same guy who does that same thing every day, right? And giving ourselves a bit of that compassion and then extending it outward.
2: I really like that. And I like that distinction you made between anger and contempt. Um, And it is interesting how much it can be potentially a slippery slope. We allow anger to come up more and more It's easy for the criticality and the judgment um, to creep in, and it moves into more of a a looking down upon. Yeah, yeah. Um, There's another question that just came in that I'm going to paraphrase a bit. So if if I'm not getting this right, please send another uh, Q&A. She's wondering about distinguishing, I think, uh, among some responses to emotional triggering. So there's there's the awareness of the emotional granularity, um, but it's the working through them. And she's asking about the differences between, say, oh, facing emotions Mm -hmm. or evasion of what's being triggered, perhaps. And for me, this brings up um, an ongoing dilemma that I wonder about. I love your perspective on this. The difference between embodying grit to move through things or resilience to tolerate Mm. the there's a way in which that grit sometimes evokes this idea of clenching your teeth and moving through something Mm. and it's often grit is embodied with this idea of positivity Mm -hmm. Um, and i wonder where the space is for um, the awareness of what's happening and the capacity to say, "Yeah, that's what it is," and I'm going to move through this.
1: Yeah, yeah. <clears throat> I guess it's like, do we always poke at the wound, or do we sometimes let it heal? Um, and you know, the the kind of myriad episodes uh, that we have emotionally on a day to day basis. If we took it upon ourselves that our entire um, you know life's work was to notice each emotion, we would do nothing else. And would that make us a more hardy individual, or would it make us a neurotically preoccupied individual? And I think that there's a you know obviously there's um, there's context that would lead to both. When people are interested in doing the work of emotion awareness, it's usually because there's a specific emotion that keeps coming up, and a specific area that is really an obstacle. Um, and I think in that case, um, we we do want to kind of Go all the way down and, and look at it from its most subtle form. So, if we want to work with our out of control rage or our out of control panic, we don't usually start with like the most extreme cases. We actually kind of want to look at that subtlety and then build our kind of capacity in some way up to learning how to to be with. Now, I think in that question, it's also around. Um, You know, how much do we need to understand about our emotions to work with our emotions, right? Like how much do we need to, um, you know, turn towards them versus let them pass through? And, you know, for many of our emotions, ideally, our our ideal is that they arise and they fall. Like this wonderful book by Robert Sapolsky, Why Zebras Don't Get Ulcers. It's because they aren't like, worried about being chased down by a gazelle, or sorry, not by a gazelle, by a, um, chased down by a, by a leopard in, at the end of the day. They were chased down, they were afraid, and they let it go. And it sounds like you had a somatic experiencing presentation here. So we know that a lot of these um, ruminative anxieties are what create so much difficulty. It's not just having a challenging time with um, a colleague. It's waking up in the middle of the night thinking about it, waking up in the morning thinking about it. Um, and so whenever we can have an emotion experience that's hard arise and just kind of dissipate on its own, wonderful. Generally, we will know we need to work with it and turn towards it because we don't get a lot of freedom from it. Keeps us up, wakes us up, persists when we don't want, we're trying to spend time with our loved one or pay attention to something else and it's right there with us.
2: You know, I know speaking personally, for me, as somebody who tends to live in my head more often than I would like to, um, the the body experiences, of somatic experiences are really lovely, and there's a nice way to to get grounded, to experience things, to even release things through body. Yeah. Um, and I've noticed I don't know how much this would resonate with others, but as somebody that, that I used to, I haven't in quite a while go to um, extended silent retreats. That as lovely as it is, and as much as I value mm. that practice, it, it it tends to keep me living here.
0: Mm. Uh,
2: so I, I wonder, to what degree in your own work, in your teaching, in, in in the settings that you work in, do you bring in body based work?
1: Yeah, I um, <clears throat> as I mentioned earlier, you know, our our colleague Wolf Meiling, I think I'm so happy that science is turning towards embodiment. I, I really. Um, I have a sense that not only are we gonna learn a lot about the mind, the gut, uh, emotion, we're also going to learn a lot of like very valuable tools and skills through the body. I I had the good fortune to talk earlier this week with trauma therapist, uh, Resmaa Menakem. And he is someone who focuses explicitly on um, kind of how racism and white supremacy lives in the body and how the only way that we address things like racism um, currently are cognitive, like, oh, let's think about why this is bad and let's learn about it and let's reduce it. And yet without uh, an ability to tolerate or show up with and be present to the pain and difficulty of facing racism, we can't, as he says, metabolize it. Mm -hmm. And so I think there's a lot of work uh, around learning to metabolize or be with difficult emotions And if we can do that, we can really kind of move towards some of the huge systemic problems in our society today. I think our avoidance of difficult, disturbing emotions, we see, you know, we see that amid any of the larger global crises we look at. Uh, What is it like to tolerate discomfort?
2: not always easy. And, uh, and it certainly seems like as a society, we, we, we tend to assume that looking at it is much worse than it ends up being.
1: Yeah. I really also, I really recommend uh, Resmaa Menekum's work for anyone interested. It's, uh, he has a lot of free resources online, especially around embodied emotions of racism and his work with somatic abolitionism. I see one last question here. Let's see if I can get into it. Over the course of your career, have you detected genuine progress among successive generations trying to incorporate and express emotional aspects of life? Are kids today better equipped than their elders? Um, It is an interesting question. Stay tuned, though. (laughs) So not yet. And. I will say that, um, you know, I'm really fortunate. I kind of grew up in this field of contemplative science. So right when I was in college, it was just starting to be, um, you know, research was starting to be done, especially at Wisconsin and UCSF and Berkeley on meditation and well-being and how that could be a real rigorous science. And I think the fact that, you know, meditation, mindfulness and well-being are now career areas for people. They're actual distinct departments of study. I do think that that is um, a big leap forward. Now, just because you study something doesn't mean you know anything about it personally. That's absolutely true. But I, I will say that when we look at social and emotional learning as a field, it has had huge leaps and bounds in the last 15 years. And I didn't mention this, but on the Greater Good Science Center website, we have a whole section just for parents and a whole section just for kids. So really looking at what are the advances from kind of the science of a meaningful life, from these pro-social tools and tips. Um, So are kids today better equipped than their elders? It's so hard because many kids today miss out on a lot of things that um, generations had before, right? So a sense, you know, for some people in certain contexts of more safety, maybe more community. So we know that community is probably one of the primary protective factors against a lot of the um, concerns and troubles of of psychological health and well-being. And
2: extended family in the household.
1: Extended family in the household. And there's just been a recent white paper on the kind of impacts of technology um, on kids. And it's interesting. It's a lot of it is around um, to what ends are you using it? You can use it to isolate and you can use it to create community. So, sorry for a totally inconclusive answer.
2: I'm so grateful, Eve. Thank you very much for sharing. Thanks for the invitation. Wonderful
1: to be here. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.